We'll now turn to the Word of God and and uh, be taught out of the Scriptures. Holy Spirit, come, we pray, and help us now. We've been um, going through a little letter uh, written by Paul to a church in a little place called Thessalonica, and uh, this will be our third installment in that little series, and this morning Aaron is going to come forwards and read uh, still in chapter 1, verses 4 through 10 for us out of 1 Thessalonians 1. Thanks, Aaron. All right. What's that? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake and became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The grass withers and the flower fades. Thank you, Aaron. Good to see all of you this morning. I'm going to pray one more time as we come to the Word. Sometimes I just feel moved to do that, and I want to do that uh, today. Let's pray. Lord, we ask your help as we come to you to come to your Word. Lord, this is one of those words that um, is uh, challenging and difficult and and maybe even counterintuitive in many ways, and requires us to trust. And God, I feel so inadequate uh, up here before your people to speak uh, your word, and I am asking for your help. You know how small I feel. Please, God, come speak to your people. Holy Spirit, take these words Apply them to our hearts and help us to live into these things only by your grace. We know all this is only possible with you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we come to a passage like this, for many of us, including myself, there can be some nerves. Um, And I'll explain as we go along a bit of the context and what's uh, going on here. Some of you have been here the last two or three weeks and have a sense of what is is, uh, going on in this little letter. We'll talk some about that as we go through. But a passage like this, for people like me and perhaps people like you, there can be some nerves. We see that word chosen there at the beginning and we suddenly feel anxious. Maybe there's some little ones out there who can resonate with this. So children, yes, I'm talking to a handful of you that are out there also. Or maybe some of you remember a time when you were a child and felt 
this way before. You're uh, getting ready to play a basketball game. Maybe it's recess or lunchtime at, at you know the school hour in school. It's the lunch hour, and you're out there on the playground with your friends, and maybe the captains are selecting teams. And you wonder, am I going to be chosen? Or will I be chosen last and be really, really embarrassed? Have any of you ever had that feeling before on the playground, game of kickball, basketball, and they're choosing the teams? I remember trying out for the baseball team year after year in middle school and high school and often having that feeling, going out to the, going over to the field or dugout or the, the coach's office, wherever the list might be, to see if you made the cut. You do your best at practice, and sometimes you just don't make the cut. When we read these words in verse 4 today, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Let us be careful to not read this passage like kids standing in a line on a basketball court, hoping to be chosen so that we can play. That is not how God operates or how God chooses. God's choice is not based on human merit. In other words, God is not looking at anything in us and basing his choice on anything in us. It's not the tallest, the most handsome, the wealthiest, the fastest, smartest, or fill in the blank. If God was the coach, God's not choosing the basketball team that we would, for sure based on all of those qualities. Second Timothy chapter one, verse nine says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. In other words, God doesn't choose like we do. When God looks across the people of the world, he's not choosing based on our merits or our works or anything we are or do or anything we would one day do. So we must set those ideas aside when we hear this word in our passage today about being chosen. Yes, God sees my heart, not what I do. Perhaps that's your thought. God does look deeper than we do. That's exactly right. And what does he see when he looks at the hearts of the people he's made? You flip to Romans chapter 3 with me very quickly and look at verses 10 through 18. I won't read that whole section. Just a few little highlights there. Romans chapter 3. We're going to see a quick glimpse of how you and are by nature. How you and I come into this world and how we are even from the moment of conception. Our nature is not good, right? Look at Romans 3, starting right there at the end of verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And he goes on and on. And at the end there in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That is you and that is me apart from the Lord. 
apart from God. Now, some of us, of course, look out across our neighborhood or our communities and we might think, yeah, I'm, I'm not that. You know, I'm not a murderous and blaspheming liar, you know, fill in the blank, which that's the way we're described in Romans 3. But as we've already talked about, we often compare ourselves with one another, not with God's perfect standard. So, yeah, by comparison, perhaps to some, we are uh, decent people by human standards. But before God, this is who we are. We're sinners. We're broken. And our hearts are desperately sick and wicked. So what this means is God is not even selecting people, choosing people, so to speak, based on what's in their heart. That's not how God works, because there's none righteous. None are good, even on a deeper level. And what is more, because of our wickedness, we are all destined for judgment. We've all earned God's punishment. And that punishment, the scriptures tell us, is to be cast into a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of fire and agony. It's a place away from everything good and beautiful. A place called hell. Many of us think this place to be some kind of fairy tale, a place that's not real, a place that's a figment of some, you know, demented person's imagination, perhaps. But when we look at the scriptures, what we find is something truly shocking. No one in the Bible talks about hell more than Jesus. And in fact, our Lord Jesus, the most loving person to ever walk the earth, talked about hell even more than he talked about heaven. There's no denying, one uh, pastor, author writes, no denying that Jesus knew, believed, and warned against the absolute reality of hell. And every single one of us deserves it. We all deserve it. As we read a moment ago, there's none righteous, not even one Man, Pastor, what was in your coffee this morning? <laughs> Some of you may be thinking, this is tough sledding. This is a hard word. And it is, and I'm up here shaking. This is one of those doctrines or those teachings no one, no one wants to talk about. We tremble before this teaching. This is not just a teaching to smack people around with. This is a hard word. But this is not my message. This was a part of the message Paul brought to the Thessalonian church, which, of course, is why I'm sharing it with you. Paul brought this message to them. Notice in verse 10 of our passage today. If you look right down the end of chapter 1 at verse 10, Jesus, who delivers us from what? From the wrath to come, it says there in verse 10. A part of this message Paul gave to this this church, this group of people, or you know, a group of people that wasn't a church at the time, but became a church through the, his preaching, through God's working, through his preaching, a part of that message was that um, there was this day of judgment that was coming. This was a standard feature of the gospel. Paul regularly preached about a day of judgment that was to come upon the world. Right? And this is not something I or anyone else, again, I think... Um, should really be eager to talk about, right? This is a, a scary and difficult doctrine, but it is a part of the truth and of the message. It must be shared. 
And in Acts chapter 17, the chapter that gives us some of the backstory about Paul's mission to Thessalonica. If you've got that map, Scott, you can go ahead and pull that up if you can do that for me as you get a chance there. I shared a little bit of this with you over the last couple of weeks. And just to briefly, briefly recap here, um, Paul is in, see if I can stay near the mic here. Paul is in uh, Troas here and receives a message, a vision from someone saying, come over to Macedonia and help us out and share the word with us, basically. So he goes and he comes into this region and he comes to Philippi. And uh, many of you know the story there. Oh, thank you, Scott. <laughs> and, um, and basically they get thrown in prison for preaching the message. And the Philippian jailers converted and they're miraculously uh, released from prison. It's a really remarkable story. And then they come on through here and they pass through these smaller towns. Again, not because they weren't important, but because Paul's strategy was to reach the, the more populated uh, cities and towns and then encourage the believers in those larger areas to reach out into these smaller areas. So he passes through here and he goes to Thessalonica, which was a very large um, city of a couple hundred thousand people. And goes into the synagogues, as was his custom, and preaches the message of Christ to them. And this is all outlined in Acts uh, 17. You can go and read it, uh, read it there. And what happens, of course, again, many of you have already heard this, but um, what happens is uh, some of the Jews are really irate and upset and cast him out, right? And, and, and he goes to Berea, just uh, next door there, or not next next door, but fairly close by, and same thing happens there. And then eventually he goes down to uh, Athens, which is uh, to the south here, you can see, Athens right there. And Acts 17 again shares uh, some of these uh, details with us. And uh, in Athens, Paul um, goes to this place called the Areopagus, and he debates the you know, some of the scholars and philosophers of the day, and he uh, preaches the gospel there. And he shares this. If you want to flip to Acts 17, you can do that. And right kind of near the end of that chapter, he shares these words. Right near the end there. In verse, let's see here, 31. He tells them that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Right. So Christ uh, died and was raised and is going to come again in judgment. And so we get the sense right from, OK, he's in Philippi sharing and can read in Philippians. You know what he shared or some of what he shared there. And then you come to Thessalonians and then you look at Athens and you begin to see this theme of, OK, there's this judgment that we deserve. There's this thing called sin that is you know, offensive to God and has estranged us from a holy God and deserves judgment. And there's a coming day of judgment. This was a standard feature is what I'm trying to say. It's not particular to the Thessalonians or to the Athenians or or any group. Um, this was a standard feature of the gospel and Paul regularly preached about this day of judgment in other words judgment is coming and Jesus the son of God who was killed for sin and was raised from the dead which we gloriously sang about a few moments ago is going to come and judge the world this was a standard feature again of Paul's gospel God's wrath and anger 
will be poured out on the world one day, and you and I deserve every bit of it. Let that sink in. It's uncomfortable to say that, and it's hard for me to stand up here and say it, but it is the truth, and it's everywhere in the Scriptures. And to recap, here's what we've said so far, or here's at least what I want to say. Buckle up, okay? (laughs) But it's going to get better, I promise. A day of judgment is coming. All of us deserve to be judged. Only those who are chosen by God will escape judgment. And there's nothing you can do to be chosen. That's the plain and simple message here before us in First Thessalonians. It feels like a hopeless situation, and you are right, because that is exactly what it is, quite frankly. Almost. Almost. One of the reasons we don't like to paint things the way I just did, in that really stark, black and white way, is because it makes us feel what you're feeling right now. What I'm feeling right now. Really bad, right? It makes us feel really helpless and hopeless and extremely uncomfortable. But I think that is precisely what we are supposed to feel. This is the situation we are in as human beings. And we do well to ponder it. Apart from God doing something for us and in us, we have no hope. No hope. And that something is, as I said, outward and inward. Something outside of us. And it's something inside of us. God must do something out and in if we are to be saved. We talk a lot about the outward things that God must do. Jesus' perfect life. Um, he obeyed all the commands, lived perfectly in the eyes of God, of God and the law, and fulfilled the law in a way we never could. And then he went to the cross and he bore our sin there and atoned for all of our sin. And he rose again for our justification that we too, one day with him, would, would rise. These historical things were necessary for us to be saved, but they're outside of us in history, right? They happened. But there's also something inside of us that must be done by God if we are to be saved. You and I must be born again. Must be born again. Go to John 3 and you can read all about the new birth there. And that's not something you and I can do to ourselves, right? Did you bring yourself into the world? Did you knit yourself together in your mother's womb and bring yourself forth? No, you did not. That's not something you did. God created you, brought you into the world. And so it is with the spiritual birth. It is something that God does to you. And our passage today tells us a little bit about some of the marks of the new birth. These marks are not things you must do to be saved. They are evidence that you are saved. So let's not confuse these, okay? As I go through, don't confuse it and say, well, you just said there's nothing we can do. And now you're telling us what we're supposed to do. No. These are the fruit, the evidences that God has done a work in your life. And that's the mere point that Paul is uh, sharing uh, with these people. And I'm not telling you to go out and do these things and then God will save you. Don't hear me that way. Then he'll choose you for the basketball team. This is not a formula for salvation. Paul here is telling the Thessalonians they are a chosen people 
that are loved by God. And he says, here's how I know it. Because I see this, that, and the other thing. He outlines the evidence. So this section gives us some of the marks of a true Christian. Those that have believed the um, the outward thing that God has done and experienced the inward thing also. And I see three major things here in this passage. First, there is a hope in Christ alone for salvation. The hope is in Christ. The hope is in him alone. And we saw these, or this last week in verse 3. Quote, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Their hope was not in their goodness or in their ability or in anything but in Jesus. So much so that even in affliction, they continued hoping in Jesus. We also see this down at the very end of this passage in verse 10, where it says they were waiting upon the return of Jesus for their deliverance. Sorry, Looking forward to, hoping, waiting. Now let's just pause here for just a moment, okay? What were the Thessalonians doing before Paul showed up? What were they doing? Look at verse 9. Okay, You see it there in the passage. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Right? They were worshiping idols. Their hope was in idols, false gods. What do you think Paul did when he came in? Did he just come in and just add another idol to their long list? Say, oh, Jesus is a God too. Throw him in there amongst the other gods. Did he come in and just offer up another option? What do you think Jesus did? No. Jesus had to tear down, or not Jesus, but Paul, sorry, in his his preaching. Jesus through Paul, right? You get what I'm saying? He had to tear down the false idols first. He had to show them there was no hope in wood and stone first, right? Before he could give them a new hope. And I think that's what we need too. That's what I'm trying to do imperfectly and probably very poorly. Bear with me. We have idols here in America and our idols are not the same as they were for the Thessalonians. They're different. Our idols, we could probably go around the room and list a few. Our idols are self. They are independence, freedom, autonomy, my right, my choice, my money, my stuff. That's the American gospel. Military might. We put our trust in ourselves and in our power, our ability. The American dream, all of that stuff. God wants us to see how those are false gods. Many of us try and bring these false gods to our Christian faith. Sadly, we all do this on some level. But the word we're hearing today says, no, Jesus is not to be one amongst your gods. He alone is God. We have to tear down these others. And many of us here are very competent and wise and hardworking and decent people who pay your bills and bless the community. And it's easy to think that our faith and our abilities and our wise choices and our decisions, you know, are what make us who we are and have us here this morning. I can figure this out. I can just do X, Y, and Z, and it's all fine. 
No hell, no wrath. I'll have heaven with my family and all is good. I think that's in there for a great many of us in a very subtle sort of way. But that is not how this works. That's a backwards way of still trusting in yourself and your wisdom and your ability. And as we've already said, you cannot do anything to save yourself. You need to feel that. The Thessalonians turned from putting their hope in false gods and turned to serve the living and true God. And that is what we must do today by the grace of God. We must stop believing the lie that you can get yourself out of the situation. You can't. That's an idol and it needs to be crushed. That having that feeling of, of your idols being um, exposed and crushed is not good and it can leave you feeling hopeless. Maybe some of you are feeling that now as I share this word with you. That is what I felt when my idols in college came crashing down. I remember the feeling very, very, very distinctly. My idol of baseball. I got I was a Division One baseball player and I got injured two years in a row and it was becoming quite clear that I was not going to be able to make up my losses. That my body was not going to recover the way that I wanted and I was not going to be able to play, continue to play baseball. And I was also in a relationship at the time and these two both, right around the same time, crumbled. And I remember just sitting in the cafeteria at times all by myself and I just start crying. I'm in the cafeteria with all these, you know, 20 and 22 year olds around and I'm sitting there, tears running down my face. Everything had collapsed for me. My idols, my dreams had collapsed. And I remember that feeling like it was yesterday. Feeling unable completely to do anything to fix the problem. I was hopeless. But what I want to say to you today, and I hope you'll hear me on this, and maybe I'm not doing a great job of explaining it, forgive me if I'm not, is that feeling of hopelessness actually should give you hope. It should prompt hope. Feeling completely unable to do anything to save yourself should give you hope. That feeling there's nothing in yourself that would make God want to choose you is the right kind of feeling because it's true. And when you read the Bible, what we see is a God that chooses those who have no reason to be chosen whatsoever. A God who chooses those who see no reason in themselves to be chosen. Listen to it the way it's put in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. That's God's word. It should give you hope. Or take Deuteronomy 7 as another example, which explains why God chose Israel. Why did God choose Israel out of all the nations? The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. 
For you are the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath that he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see that. God loves the small, the insignificant, those that see nothing in themselves worthy of being chosen or looked upon. The God of the Bible is the one that loves the lame, the insignificant, the outcast, the broken, the empty, the prisoner, the widow, the barren, the orphan, the poor, idol worshipers like the Thessalonians and like you and like me. Those that have nothing to give. This is why James says the essence of of pure and undefiled religion is to go visit widows and orphans in their distress, right? Why? Because they can give nothing back. And this is what we see here. God is choosing a different kind of basketball team. So if you're feeling that sense of hopelessness this morning, like there's nothing in you worthy of God, then I want to say to you, that's what the Thessalonians were feeling. After their idols came crashing down, the things that they'd given their life to. And Paul comes in and says, well, that's precisely what you need to be feeling because I have some good news for you. And that sent, out of that sense of hopelessness, they were able, in God's goodness and grace, to turn to Jesus. They came to Jesus with their nothing and they put their hope in him alone. And this is the first evidence that they were bona fide chosen followers of Christ, is that their hope was in Jesus alone. The second piece of evidence was that the gospel was taught and received with power. The gospel was taught and received with power. Look at verse 5 with me. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The word for power here in this passage is uh, the word we get our word for dynamite from. And scholars debate whether or not the power here is referring to miraculous power, like they came and performed miracles before them to you know, persuade them of the message, or if it's referring to power in the preaching, or perhaps both. Uh, there's a kind of a debate about all of that. Whatever it's referring to exactly, we can confidently say that it was noticeable, right? You don't put a stick of dynamite in something and not notice it, right? It goes off kaboom. It's a noticeable kind of thing that was uh, happening here. Things transpired in Paul's preaching that was like dynamite going off in their presence. Today, churches try to create this dynamite with, you know, music at the right time in the background and fog kind of suddenly coming out across the crowd and you know, lights and a stage and a sort of entertainment, more atmosphere and all this feeling and, you know, trying to stir emotion. Trying to maybe create some of that sense of dynamite happening, but this is not something that can be created by us. Skinny jeans and a lot of muscle and energy or technology can't create 
what we're talking about here. And I'm not against skinny jeans, all right? So don't, don't hear me wrong there. I wear them every now and then. What Paul's talking about here is when the Holy Spirit shows up and you just know that God is there. Maybe everyone's sitting on the edge of their seats as the word is rightly explained and taught. People's hearts are open because the Spirit is working in them. No gimmicks, no flashy stuff, just truth with conviction. This is what Paul is saying at the end of verse 5. Look at verse the end of verse 5. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. He's saying, you knew us. We were there. We, you know, No gimmicks, no show, no flashy lights. Just, you knew us. We were just being us and preaching the message. He's appealing to the fact that when they were among them in Thessalonica, they walked in integrity. Paul is going to pick up again on this in uh, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Or no, it's not second, sorry. In chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, he's going to pick up on this. And he says this, starting in verse 2. We'll look at this in, again next week or the week after. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our, our, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So what Paul's saying there is that they did not coerce them, right? They didn't come in with all this big show and whatever to somehow make them believe. They did not come brandishing swords or threatening them or forcing them to make some decision or giving them money if they follow Jesus or God would take all their problems away. They simply brought the good news and the Holy Spirit came in power and changed people and did stuff through the word and they responded to God's grace and faith. When Tim and I preached in Kenya, the response was always overwhelming, despite you know, my, my struggles while I was there. I felt weak and insecure and out of place, as I do oftentimes here, if I'm totally honest, right? But we would finish, and people would flood down to the altar with tears and with repentance after we would preach. Language barriers, cultural barriers. You know, I was sick half the time I was there, um, felt like I didn't understand what I was doing. It was all new. And after every service, people would flood down to the altar, uh, weeping, crying, asking for prayer, um, praying that God would save them, and so on. The Spirit of God's presence was, or the presence of God's Spirit, sorry, was evident. There was a power that was there. It was beyond any man. We knew God was among us. It was dynamite that was there. It didn't feel artificial. It was real despite all of the barriers. God was working. It felt completely um, of God. And that was not of man. It was God working, changing hearts and lives. And the evidence was that the people were responding. People were responding. Their hearts were being changed. I think we tend to get this backwards, right? We just kind of stay on the surface level and we think that God is responding to us When in reality, our response is a result of what he's already done inside of us. 
That's Paul's logic here in this passage. And that is why this whole section here is a part of Paul's thanksgiving to God. The NIV and the NLT are two translations that separate verses 2 and 3 from verse 4. There's a new paragraph there. That's not accurate. If you look at the original, it's all one long sentence. And everything that follows stems directly out of him thanking God. He's thanking God for their salvation. Thanking God for their response. Thanking God for their joy. Thanking God for all of it. It's one thought. This whole section is a part of Paul's thanksgiving to God. He sees these things as evidence of God's saving work in this group of people. Like we saw last week, and I won't go into what we talked about last week. But This is the second piece of evidence that you are among the chosen. You've heard the word of God taught in truth, and you've received it in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? God's done something in you. You feel it, you know it, you sense it. And there's a response and a coming. That's the second piece. The third piece of evidence is a changed life. There's a a changed life. This entire next section, verses 6 through 10, lists out things that Paul observed in them. And that that gave him confidence to say these are truly God's people. They're truly of God. He's truly done a work here. And I'll just read it for you. And we, we could list them off, but it'd probably just be better just read through. Verse, starting at verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul looks at their joy and affliction. Their imitation of himself and of the Lord. Their boldness to share the message with others. They're turning from idols. They're hoping in Jesus And he thanks God. He says, these people, you people, truly are of God. You're saved. You're chosen. You're elect. You're of his people. He sees that God has done a deep work inside of them. Again, his work. Actually, that word chosen there in the original means elected. Mere profession is not real evidence of salvation. In other words, someone tells you they're a Christian that alone is not enough to indicate that they truly are, okay? Right? The proof in the pudding are these things that we've looked at here today. And that's why Paul is sharing them. To be an encouragement, not a confusion. I hope nothing I've said here today is confusing. If it is, certainly we chat afterwards. But what do we do with these teachings? These things are in the Word of God, right? These, these are not my ideas or my thoughts. These things are here in the scriptures, and they're there over and over again. I know some of you may nuance or explain some of the details a little differently, and that's okay. But these are hard teachings, and they are in the scriptures. But what are we to do? And I want to encourage us as I close, just a last uh, thought here as we, as we wrap up. Let's not miss the forest for the trees, okay? We're not to sit around and stew 
over whether or not you're chosen. Okay? That's probably a lot of our reaction. Don't stew over this. Sometimes these, again, we, we go back to that playground feeling, right? No, that's not the right reaction. And that's not the point of the passage. Paul's goal here is to encourage believers, to give them insur- assurance, actually, to say what's happening in your life is not you. It's God at work in you. That's the point. So if you see these things in yourself, be encouraged. God is at work in you. Thank God for that. That's an encouragement. Paul is thanking God. How backward it would be for us to simply stew over, you know, whether or not we're in the right camp or so on. Be encouraged if you see these things in your life. As we go through the letter, Paul is going to continue to say things like, continue in this way. Keep responding to the grace of God this way. Right? He's at work in your life. Continue responding. Continue doing what you are doing. But perhaps some of you are listening and thinking to yourself, I don't see those things in my life and I am concerned. Right? I don't have the joy and affliction. Right? I don't have the, you know, the boldness to share with my neighbors, perhaps sometimes even if I know they're, or especially when I know they're maybe, you know, on a different page with all of this. I don't have those things in my life. And maybe you're feeling concerned. Let me tell you, that concern is from God. That concern is from God. Be encouraged by that. Right? Scripture says that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Right? God's working and leading. Let us respond in the grace of God. That sense of inadequacy. That sense of I'm unworthy. That sense of I've not done right should lead you right here to the cross. Come to the cross. Believer, unbeliever, wherever you are, come to the cross. That is what the Thessalonians did. And Paul turns and says these words to them. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Respond today. And these words will be said to you as well, right? Amen. If you would like to discuss any of this more, I'll be here for a few moments after the service. But that's the word of the Lord for you today. Let's pray together now as we turn and respond with a song. Lord, uh, these are deep things and they are things that are in your word and they are not often easily explained or understood. But the bottom line is... Uh, these things are a, a result of your working in our hearts. And we give you honor and praise for all of the various fruits that, of course, were seen in the Thessalonians and that we see in our lives. We thank you for those things. And we ask for your help to uh, respond to your grace and your working by living lives that uh, um, God bring you honor and praise. Lord, we turn from our idols of self and our idols of of our own freedom and our autonomy and our right and ability to to choose and to do this and do that. We turn from those idols and we say salvation is yours alone. It is in your hands alone. We come to you, to the cross, asking your forgiveness and your empowering and your help and your mercy, just as the Thessalonians did. We turn to you now in song and worship. We thank you and love you in Jesus' name.
Amen.